Good morning to you! For centuries, Christians have greeted each other with, He is risen, to which the other brother would reply, He is risen Why do we say that? If you Google that term, you'll see in you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of languages that has been said, that is written. Um, why is that something we say? Because the basis of our faith is absolutely fused to the reality of the resurrection. Either death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him, or we are hopelessly locked in our sins. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But friends, I bring you great news of good joy. For there has been born unto us a Savior, Christ the Lord. This Jesus not only lived sinlessly and died voluntarily, but on the third day, He rose victoriously. Robert Lowry got it right way back in 1874 when he noted, low in the grave He lay, waiting the coming day. And vainly they watch His bed, vainly they seal the dead. Death cannot keep His prey, He tore the bars away. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Today we pause from our perusal of 1 Corinthians to focus in on, on Easter, this Resurrection Sunday. And uh, on Good Friday, just a, a couple of nights ago, we read from Matthew's Gospel, and we started in the upper room. And from there, we went to the garden in Gethsemane and unto the cross of Calvary. Our survey ended in Matthew 27, in the last verse of that chapter. And in Matthew 27, we ended with a sealed sepulcher and a slain Savior. I would like you to turn today to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, it is the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. For He is risen, He is risen indeed. Now if you don't have a Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to use one of ours in the center rack of the pew in front of you should be a blue pew Bible. If you turn to page uh, 1061, I am cautiously optimistic, you will find Matthew 28, page 10. 61. As we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together today in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we need you. And we are grateful that you so love the world that you sent your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we ask that today in the last chapter of the first gospel, that the reality of the resurrection would hit us afresh and anew. Perhaps this is a brand new truth to some here today. For others, this is an old, old story that we've heard many times. May we be deeply impacted yet again this time by the reality of the resurrected Christ. May your word come alive in our hearts. May your spirit take your word and achieve your good purposes. We ask this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the tomb stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the Roman guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen. As He said, Come and see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see Him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said to them, Greetings! And they came up and they took hold of His feet and they worshipped Him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see Me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, that is Jerusalem, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place, the angel and the earthquake and the empty tomb. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, that is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, they gave a sufficient sum of money to those soldiers. And they said, tell people, his disciples stole the body. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, that is Pilate, their boss, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So those soldiers took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews and among the world to this day. Now the eleven disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So friends, our, our first point today, and, and the most important point today, is this. In the resurrection, we see God at work. In the resurrection, we see God at work. How? Well, in several ways. I'm just going to highlight a few. Uh, for one, in the resurrection, we see God at work in fulfilling His prophetic promises to us. Verse 1 lays out a very important time marker. Don't miss it. Now, after the Sabbath... Towards dawn on the first day of that new week. Now, Jesus had repeatedly promised that he would rise from the dead on the third day. In Matthew's Gospel, as soon as it was revealed to Peter from heaven that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, immediately as soon as Peter understood that and revealed that, Jesus explained that he must be killed and rise again on the third day. I want you to turn backwards in Matthew to page 1044 of the Blue Pew Bible, 1044, and I want you to go to Matthew 16.21. Matthew 16.21. Matthew 16.21. This is just after Peter's great announcement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, uh, you know, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, for this was revealed not by men, but by heaven. 
And upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this confession of thou art the Christ, the church shall be built. But immediately following, Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, as soon as they figured out that Jesus was the Messiah, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and that He must be killed and on the third day raised. Now friends, if you read that story, Peter does not like the bad news portion of the good news. But friends, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it does not bear fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was Jesus speaking about the fact that through His death, many would have life. You see, through Jesus' death, death shall be defeated. To reverse the curse, Jesus had to be accursed for us. The prophecy of Genesis 3 in the garden when sin first entered in, in the fullness of time, is about to come to fruition via the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Everything that the first Adam lost, the last Adam is going to regain. Colossians 2 puts it this way. You might write it in your Bibles, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. When we were dead in our sins, utterly helpless, the dead cannot fix their problem. The sick can, the dead can't. When we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code. No more law-keeping. Now there is just looking unto Jesus. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, Jesus took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. That is, over the forces of darkness and demons and Satan through the cross. All that. Not only is sin defeated and death is defeated, but hell itself is defeated. Now, Jesus' prediction of His resurrection wasn't some one-off pronouncement. It was a repeated promise to us. Just in the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see several times Jesus pronounced that He would rise on the third day as the ultimate sign of the fact that He's the Savior. After Jesus' glory is revealed at the Mount of Transfiguration, when a a small intimate group of His disciples see His his intrinsic resident glory that was veiled to humanity because He came to look like one of us. But for a moment, He peeled back those layers and the Shekinah glory of God shone from Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, that's when Jesus again predicts that He would die for you and I. If you go to Matthew 17.22, flip over a couple pages to Matthew 17.22, it's on page 1045. After revealing His glory, He revealed His plan, and it was to die that you and I might be saved. I want you to look at Matthew 17.22, and as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And again, in Matthew 20 and verse 17, Matthew 20 and verse 17, go to the right a little bit to Matthew 20 and verse 17, for a third time in this one Gospel, Christ is clear that He will die and He will be raised on the third day. Matthew 20 and verse 17 is on page 1049. 1049. Matthew 20, 17, the Bible says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All right. With that background, I want you to go back to the first verse in our text, Matthew 28, 1. Matthew 28, 1, the Bible says, Now after the Sabbath, towards dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the others went to see the tomb, the tomb that is now empty because Jesus was raised. And you're going to see it was on the third day. You see, Jesus' crucifixion took place on Friday before sundown, on Good Friday. He died before the Sabbath started, which was at sundown, which is why when the soldiers came to make sure that all the criminals were were done before the Sabbath day, and they went to break his legs, they found he was already dead, so they didn't have to break his legs, which means he definitively died before the Sabbath day. Now, to a first century Jewish person, they would consider any part of a day as a day. And so Jesus died on Friday, day one, by their thinking. And he stayed in that grave all through the Saturday Sabbath day, the last day of the week, day two, in that way of thinking. And our text says, after the Sabbath day was completed, towards dawn on the first day of the week, well, friends, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they went to that tomb, but that tomb was empty because Jesus was raised. And that means on the third day, any part of the first day of the new week, on the third day, Jesus arose. Christ arose. Just as He predicted, the impossible was achieved. Now, I don't know if you know this, but death has a very high batting average. It's incredibly good at death. Uh, The dead always tend to stay dead. You're about to go become a doctor. When you're dead, dead, not sort of dead, not sort of uh, uh, the, uh, the princess bride, he's mostly dead, but I mean dead, dead. They stay dead. There's a few exceptions to that in the history of the world. Uh, and they're always when God steps in, when the truly dead come back. Uh, in the Old Testament, God raised a widow's son under the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. It's the power of God that had the power over death. In the New Testament, Jesus stood at a grave of his friend Lazarus who has been dead for a good long while. And decomposition was set in and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And and indeed, the dead man came out in his grave clothes and had to be helped out of those wrappings of death. But now Jesus is going to give us the ultimate sign. Instead of uh, uh, someone being raised by God's power, God Himself is going to raise Himself by His own power. It had never been done before. Three days after the Messiah was put to death, He is going to show His power over sin and death and hell itself by demonstrating that death and the devil have no power over the author of life. I want you to listen to our passage again. Now, after the Sabbath, towards dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They were expecting to to see a, a closed sepulcher, and they were probably wanting to anoint the body further. And behold, there was a great earthquake, the Bible says. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and he rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, those guards, they trembled and they became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. 
come and see the place where he lay, the empty tomb. So friends, in the resurrection, we see God at work fulfilling prophecy, vindicating Jesus' authority, doing the impossible so we can have rock-ribbed assurance and confidence in Jesus that if you put your trust in Him, just as He overcame sin, death, and hell itself, so too can you if you stand in faith with Jesus. Now, in the resurrection, not only do we see God at work in fulfilling prophecy, but we also are going to see creation's jubilation at this proclamation of resurrection. The earth will leap with joy. The Bible says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now on Good Friday, we've already read how the ground shuddered in a violent earthquake when Jesus died. Now on the third day, creation danced in jubilation at its King's resurrection. Uh, Cornelius Alapide poetically noted that the earth which trembled with sorrow at the death of Christ, will it leap for joy at His resurrection. John Phillips put it this way, the ground that shook with palsy when its Creator died shook with pleasure when He rose again. Creation, which was subjected to frustration, leapt in jubilation in anticipation knowing of its liberation because all that Adam lost was going to be regained because the last Adam will fulfill what the first Adam failed. Friends, in the resurrection, we see God at work. We see God at work not just in fulfilling prophecy perfectly, and not just in making creation dance in jubilation, but we're going to see the host of heaven dispatched to disclose these things to you and I. Listen in again as the angel's announcement of Jesus' victory over sin and death is given. Now after the Sabbath... Towards the first day, or excuse me, towards dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and then sat down on it. His work was finished. His appearance was like lightning. You'd have to kind of look away at his, at his brightness. And his clothing was white as snow, and in perfection, a holy, angelic being. And for fear of him, those hardened Roman centurions sent to guard the tomb, well, they fell as like dead men. They'd never seen anything like this. This was no enemy they were prepared to tangle with. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who's been crucified, but he's not here, for he has risen. Come and look at the tomb and see for yourself. Friends, just as God dispatched angels for the birth of Christ, God again dispatched an angel to announce the resurrection of Christ. In the resurrection, we also see the power of God over the feeble powers of men. The might of Rome was amazing. I mean, it stretched all the way from, from, from England uh, down to Africa. It stretched uh, far to the west and far to the east, and they controlled the globe. The power and might of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. Well, I love how John Phillips frames this. With the majestic disdain for priest and procurator, the angel sat on the stone. 
Let Jerusalem and Rome try to move that angel. What did the angel care about the machinations of the Sanhedrin or the might of Caesar? What did the angel care about priestly courts and princely cohorts? No power on earth was going to roll that stone closed again. No Jewish Sanhedrin or mighty Roman sovereign could rewrap the empty grave clothes that once housed the incarnate clay that linen had bound in death for a few short days. Now, as impressive as an angel's appearing is, and it is impressive, in fact, in the Bible, when angels appear, people always tend to want to worship them, and the angel has to say, don't do that, only worship God. As impressive as it is that an angel appeared, our faith does not rest on an angelic announcement. If it did, we would have the same minuscule certainty as those who follow Muhammad, who claims that the angel Gabriel told him everything that's written in the Quran. Or to Joseph Smith, who claims that there's these golden tablets no one can find in a language that no one can corroborate, but that angels told it to him. The angel Moroni, supposedly. But our faith does not rest on the word of an angel, no matter how bright his countenance or how bold his confidence. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen? It is on Christ, the solid rock we stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. Our faith rests on something much more solid than visions of angels. It rests on a risen King. The Bible says, starting in verse 8, and so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell His disciples, and behold, Jesus met them. Jesus met them. Resurrected Jesus met them. And He said, Hi. He said, Greetings. It's a very casual, loving, friendly greeting. And they came. They took hold of his feet. They took hold of his feet. You could touch him. They didn't go. And he was a mist. They took hold of his feet. This was no vision. This was no hallucination. This was a physical resurrection by the author of life with power over death. Do you worship this risen king? You see, touching the resurrected Jesus is one thing. Wow, he's really there. But they did more than that. The Bible says they came up and they took hold of his feet and they did what? And they worshipped him. So I'm going to ask you again, do you worship this risen king? Have you reached out in faith to but touch the hem of the garment that you might be made clean? Have you asked Jesus to cleanse you and save you and forgive you and adopt you? Do you kneel? Do you kneel before Jesus? Because the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Have you come to the place in your own heart where you can sing, Hail Jesus, You're my King. Your life frees me to sing. I will praise You all my days. You're perfect in all Your ways. Hail Jesus, You're my Lord, and I will obey Your Word. I want to see Your kingdom come. Not my will, but Thine be done. Friends, it's important to realize that the tomb 
was not open to let Christ out. It was open to let us in to see that it was already empty. Jesus' resurrection body passed through the grave clothes and it passed through the stone sepulcher the same way it's going to enter into a locked room. He's going to come through because a resurrected body, while physical and tangible, is also different and powerful. The only question is, if Jesus can pass through the tomb and pass into the room, have you passed? On Jesus because he's passing by you begging you calling you wooing you drawing you put your faith in me now so you can have peace with God forever what a tragedy to know the old redemption story and to somehow turn away from the great redeemer of that story Sadly, friends, some folks will make that tragic mistake. Right here in our passage, the soldiers also felt the earthquake. The soldiers also saw the angel, the Bible says, but instead of eternal life, they chose the good life in the here and now. Instead of embracing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, they chose to peddle lies, to reject the way, and to condemn their lives. And that brings us to our second point today, and you need to hear it. There's victory in Jesus, but there's also lies from the enemy. The second point is this, despite the resurrection, we still see Satan at work right now in our world. Despite the resurrection, we still see Satan at work in our world. Amazingly, at the exact same chronology as the saints are worshiping their Savior who's risen, the guards and the chief priests are concocting a story to slander that risen Savior. Listen again at verse 11. And while they were going, that is, while the, the, the ladies had worshiped Jesus, and they were running back to Galilee to tell the others about risen Jesus. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, and they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and he said, you know what, just tell the people. His disciples came by night and they stole him away while you were asleep. And if this does come to your boss's ears, if this does come to Pilate's ears, if this does come to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So those soldiers took the money as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews and across the world to this very day. Friends, the women were about to confound the world with the greatest fact of history. And at the exact same moment, the watchmen were going to confuse the world with the most tremendous falsehood in all of history. Same moment, very different reactions. Now these soldiers were almost certainly Roman soldiers. Pilate said the Sanhedrin could take some guards to the tomb. That could go either way. That could be Jewish temple police or hardened Roman soldiers. But the fact the Sanhedrin say in verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears... We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Well, Pilate didn't have authority over the temple police. He had authority over his soldiers. So these were Roman soldiers, and that's important. Because you need to understand, this is a Roman cohort, a contingent of Roman legionnaires guarding the sepulcher. 
Now, if you know that that is the case, and that is the case, the text tells us as much, you need to understand what history tells us about a Roman centurion on guard duty. A Roman soldier caught asleep when he was supposed to be on guard was always subject to execution for dereliction of duty. So the idea of tell them you were asleep was something that would cost them their life. So this is a hard trade, okay? Equally, the Roman legion had a basic practice, and it was this. If you lost a prisoner, your life would be exchanged for the loss of that prisoner's getting away. You see this a number of times in our own Bible. In uh, Acts 12.19, an angel miraculously releases Peter from prison, and Herod the governor had his Roman soldiers executed for failing to keep their charge. If you were to turn for a second to Acts 12.18, Acts 12.18, Acts 12.18, that should be on page 1171, you're going to see the price a soldier would pay a Roman soldier, if he lost his prisoner. Acts 12, 18, page 1171. Verse 18 of Acts chapter 12, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and he ordered they be executed. Because that's how it worked when you lost a prisoner. This is why the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 almost took his life when, when Paul and Silas, he thought they had escaped because a great earthquake had shook his prison and the only thing that opened were prison doors. No walls fell, but doors opened. And he thought, my prisoners must have run out. And he was about to kill himself because he knew he was going to be killed for losing the prisoners. Better to end his life on his own terms than on their terms in public execution. And Paul had to cry out, wait, we're here. And that's when the man eventually became a Christian. This is why in Acts 27, we read where the soldiers, there's the shipwreck off of Malta, and it says that, that the soldiers intended to kill their prisoners because they didn't think that they could keep them without the boat on the island, and they knew that if the prisoners got away, they would be liable to death. So the Roman soldiers in our story, they had a problem. They failed at their one job, to secure a sepulcher. Doesn't sound very hard, does it? Here's your job. Make sure the dead guy doesn't escape. As jobs go for centurions, doesn't sound like a hard one. But because in the resurrection, God is at work, they had an impossible job that day. An impossible job. So these soldiers, they went to the Jewish Sanhedrin, for it was the Sanhedrin who had asked their boss, Pilate, for the cohort in the first place. Maybe the Sanhedrin could help them because if they went to Pilate and explained that the seal of Rome, the might of Rome has been broken and the tomb that they were to guard is now empty, it was certain death. Now remember, Pilate murdered innocent Jesus. He said he's innocent. I wash my hands of this, okay? What would he do to guilty soldiers? who caused the seal of Rome to be desecrated and the deceased charge to be relocated. He would have no hesitation in their execution. And so the soldiers did the math, at least some of them. Others maybe ran away and hid, but the Scriptures say some of the soldiers went to the Sanhedrin because they rightly reckoned, you know what, if that Sanhedrin had the power to force Pilate's hand to murder Jesus, it might have the power to stay Pilate's hand in executing us. 
was the best solution they could come up with. Now, in Zimbabwe, we would say the Sanhedrin were too clever by half. (laughs) What we mean is this. The Jewish leaders had outsmarted themselves. The very guards that they demanded to prevent a potential problem could now testify that we have an actual problem. The body's gone. And so a cover-up was needed. And money was the universal lubricant to make sure everybody sang from the same hellish hymnal when it came to this story. Listen again, starting in verse 11. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, the Sanhedrin got all the other smart folks together, they gave a sufficient bribe, a sufficient sum of money to those soldiers. And those Jewish leaders said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and they did what they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this very day. I want you to notice that the soldiers first tell and then sell the truth. That's the order. They did give an account to the truth, and then they changed their account when money came into the scene. While they were going, verse 11, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, and they were given a sufficient sum of money. That's when the story changed. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, friends, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. But many people try. These soldiers had a first-hand encounter with the facts of the gospel. But they turned their backs on the truth and they embraced a lie for all they were worth. Are we any different? Many of us have heard all about Jesus. But instead of asking Him to redeem us, we prefer to go our own way. The lure of wealth. The fear of of social ostracism. The desire to live life on our own terms as though we are God causes us to walk away from the clear truth of the Gospel when the Spirit tells us this is the truth. Believe it. And live. The guards, despite knowing better, satanically perpetuated a great lie against the universe's greatest truth. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Instead of saying He is risen, instead of saying He is risen indeed, they ludicrously told the people His disciples stole the body. They came at night while we were asleep. Now friends, this is a ludicrously lousy lie. It's a ludicrously lousy lie. What court would accept this testimony? Your Honor, I consider myself a credible witness in all this. I was completely asleep when the events took place. So let me tell you what happened when I was asleep and didn't see any of it. That sound like that's going to hold up in a kangaroo court? And that's the thing about lies. The truth sets us free. But lies suck us into the realm of the ludicrous. Mark Twain once noted that a lie can go around the world before the truth is finished lacing her boots up. Because there's something in our fallen sinful nature 
that makes it easy for people to hold on to a lie if it's more convenient than the truth. Our passage contains the lie that Satan desperately wants to never die. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while you were asleep. So they took the money and they did as they were directed and this story has spread to this very day. Now I want you to notice they didn't try to deny the empty tomb. They just tried to explain it. Now why is that? Because the empty tomb was something they couldn't deny. It was the elephant in the room. If this was all fiction by the Christians, produce the corpse and there is no Christianity. Nobody could do it. Because there is no corpse. Huh. So the soldiers, with their sizable sums secured to perjure the Savior, feel pretty safe in all this. And if you read it in the original Greek, it comes clear and loud. In the Greek, there's the pronoun hemes, and hemes is redundant. You don't need it in the sentence, which means it's emphatic. It's, it's drawing attention to the word hemes. In the original Koine Greek, the text reads like this. Listen carefully. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We. Now, history tells us that Roman officials could be bought with a bribe. And in fact, in our own Bible, in Acts 24, you see just this. You might write Acts 24 next to that. We will satisfy him. When Paul is brought before the Roman governor, Felix, the Bible tells us in Acts 24, 25, as Paul discoursed on righteousness and self-control and the judgment of God to come, Felix the governor was afraid and said, whoa, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Verse 26, though, at the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe. And so the governor sent for him frequently to hear more until he got convicted, then he'd send him away, back and forth, back and forth, hoping that Paul's followers would send some money to let him go. So far we've seen that in the resurrection, God is clearly at work. We've also seen that despite the resurrection, Satan is still at work. Which brings us to our final point today. Point three on your outlines. Because of the resurrection, we must get to work. Because of the resurrection, we must get to work. Remember what Jesus said to those blessed Marys, those ladies back in verse 10. Uh, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and go and tell my... And what's the word He uses? Brothers! Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now back in John 15, 15, Jesus has said, no longer do I call you servants. We are servants of the living God. But while He was still alive, He, he said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Through Jesus' crucifixion, God's enemies can become God's friends. And through Jesus' resurrection, our Savior becomes our brother. And we become co-heirs with Christ and all the benefits that come with that. So the question I have for you is, are you Jesus' friend today? Is Jesus your brother because He's first your Savior? A chapter ago, these men were deserters. They ran away from Jesus. But Jesus comes to them. Many times we've run away from Jesus. Many times we've, in disgrace, chosen another way. 
But Jesus came after them. He calls them my brothers. He's calling out to you and I in our failings, in our faltering, and he says, come to me. A chapter ago, these men were deserters. Jesus is going to call them disciples. Bring my brothers, my disciples. You see, resurrected Jesus changes us. Have you asked Jesus to change you? And if so, God has a mission for you. Because of the resurrection, we, who know Him, must get to work. Listen again to our Lord's words to the church in our passage. Verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, God has redeemed us for a reason. And that reason is that we would be His witnesses. God has given a great commission to every single Christian. And there is one verb in this passage, in this commission. And it's not go, and it's not baptize. It's not even teach. Those are all participles. They hang grammatically under the weight of the main verb. And let me tell you, this verb is not a typical verb. It's an imperatival. It is a command. It is not a choice or a suggestion. It is the command of Christ to the Christian. And it is this. You and I are called by Jesus to make disciples in this world. Now, there are three participles that enumerate and explain what disciple-making ought to look like, and they are this. The first participle is the Greek word poruomai, and it's saying literally, as we are going, as we are going tomorrow to work, as we are going today to our Easter feast, as we go to watch the Yankees hopefully win, or the Mets, or, or the Cardinals, if you really love Jesus. Uh, <laughs> As you're going, point people to Jesus in your actions, in your reactions, in your interactions. And encourage the saints to shine for their Savior as you're going, where you're going this week. The second participle is the Greek word baptizo, baptizing. Making disciples is a call to a radical reorientation of our direction and affections towards Christ and His kingdom. Whatever we used to think was important is now not compared to Christ and His kingdom. Baptizo means that we are to call that new disciple to a public declaration of their new life in Jesus. So that what is true in their hearts internally and privately might be clear to others externally and publicly. We're to encourage one another that we belong to Jesus. There was a church that was so effective at this that at Antioch, the Bible said they were first called Christians. By who? Everybody else. Because they said there was something different about those people, and the difference was Jesus in those people. Oh, that the modern church might be like the ancient church and be known not for its programs and preachers, but for its Savior. And they would call us Christians because of the difference Christ has made in us. 
The Bible puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. People often want to invent themselves, reinvent themselves, be the person they've always wanted to be, and you find that, you know what, the things I want to do, I cannot stop doing, <laughs> and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Paul said he had that struggle, and he said, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer in the scripture was Jesus. If you want to turn over a new leaf, you need a new life, and Jesus is in the life-giving business. He's the author of life, and he overcame death. As we're going, we're to make disciples. We're to call them to a radical reorientation in their intention, affection, and direction away from sin and towards the Savior. We call them not to some ethereal, private, personal sentiment, but to bold public proclamation through baptismal identification. And then we instruct these new disciples. We teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. We don't obey so Jesus loves us. That's works-based religion. Because Jesus loves us, we want to honor him, and so we obey. If you love me, obey my commands. It's not, so I will love you, obey my commands. For God so loved the world, he already sent his only begotten son. He loves you so much, he's already died for you 2,000 years ago. Our obedience is an overflow of our relationship. It isn't the thing that gives us a relationship. Our relationship is by grace, through faith so that no man can boast. Friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. In the resurrection, without question, God is at work. Despite the resurrection, my friends, Satan is still at work. And critically, because of the resurrection, we must get to work. We must go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us in our hearts from your Scripture. We pray that you would convict us of sin and convince us of your Son. That you would give us a burning yearning, as the Old Testament says, as the deer pants for water, may so our soul yearn for you. You tell us in your Sermon on the Mount that he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled. That is, if we genuinely want to seek after you, you will open it up to us. So I pray that if there's someone here today who's maybe heard the Gospel for the first time, Maybe they're a little skeptical. Maybe they're unsure. I know exactly how that feels. I thought Christians were idiots and they needed a mental, emotional crutch because they couldn't stand on their own two feet. But you began to convince me that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I began to read the Scriptures on my own and see that, you know, this isn't a book of myths and dragons and mythology and religious rules. This is a, a book like no other book that points to a man like no other man because God became a man and he changes us. And I may not be the man that I want to be, but praise God, I'm no longer the man I used to be because you make all things new. And if that sounds good to you too, I want to encourage you to get in this book. Get in the Gospel of John. Start reading the Bible and ask God to reveal himself to you. Well, maybe you're a little farther along in that journey. Maybe you've, you've been hearing and, and you realize that Jesus is the Christ that He's the Son of the living God, that you believe He died and rose again. But the facts don't save you. Faith saves you. You must ask Jesus to be your Lord. The Bible says that all 
who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You must believe that He's the Son of God and you must confess with your mouth that He's the Lord of my life. If that's true for you and you'd like to do that today right here on Easter Sunday, you can do that in the quietness of your heart. If this is what you really want, you could pray with me right now. Something like this. Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I believe your word that says there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved other than Jesus. Because Jesus alone came from heaven to earth and did what no man could do. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus came and he lived a life without sin, though he was tempted in all points. And then he died on the cross innocently that my debt could be put on his shoulders substitutionally and his righteousness could be put in me. And so that when you see me from this point forward, you see the infinite righteousness of Jesus. I want that, Lord Jesus. I want to be adopted. I want to be your child. Help me to shine for you like bright stars in a wicked and depraved generation. Start changing my orientation. Change my affections. Change my directions. Change my interactions. Change my reactions. Help me to be a perfume in the room and not a stench in the trench. That I would bring you great glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.